0: A better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face
1: And we are live. Welcome folks to episode 3384 of the Survival Podcast. We're gonna have a great discussion today with our guest, uh Patrick McKnight. And we're gonna be talking about you know having an obvious career path in front of you and deciding to pursue something you really love and are passionate about that may or may not be in some way related to what you've studied and prepared to do all your life. I think there's a lot of people coming up against that right now, asking themselves, even if they have invested a lot of uh, money and time in an educational path, is this really what I want to do? Or do I want to do it the way that everybody says I'm supposed to do it? And I think that we're also, you know, since we're kind of talking about someone started out as a hobby today talking about the concept that whether you are in that particular predicament or not, there is always the option to take something you love and turn it into an income stream, do something entrepreneurial with with it. And we'll have our special guest on in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and remind you about a couple things today. Uh, Number one is I will be at the Self-Reliance Festival in Camden, Tennessee, in just a couple weeks. It's the 14th and 15th of October, if I remember right. And I'll be there. Joel Salen will be there. John Willis will be there. Nicole Sauce will be there. And we'd like you to be there. But I also figure most people who are going to come, you've already decided you're going to come. You've already got your tickets. You're already ready to come. And if you're not coming, it's probably because you can't. And you really wish you could. You didn't get a virtual pass. Yep, that's right. You get a digital pass. You can see all the presentations. You can even ask us questions from your end of things and uh, participate in it that way if you just can't travel to uh, Camden, Tennessee. Next up today, um, I did something kind of cool. I think for everybody that's coming to uh, my workshop in November, November one through five, TSP twenty three. After interviewing uh, Jim Shockey, which was a really big deal for me to get to interview him. He's a guy I've followed for thirty years now. Probably the biggest name in you know outdoor sports that's that's still around with us anyway. Just a great dude, and he's got a great book out called Call Me Hunter. And every one of my paying students is getting a free copy of this book signed and numbered the way you see on your screen right there if you're watching it. It'll be, you know, Jim Shockey's name, TSP 23, number one of X, with X being however many total books there are. Um, I've committed to a certain number to cover all the students and a few people I want to gift, but I've set it up where you can order extra copies of it. If you are going to do that, you need to either be coming here or have somebody coming here that can pick it up for you. I can't individually ship books. Um, So it's for people coming to the workshop or have somebody pick it up only. They would make great gifts for somebody in your life that loves, you know, kind of the outdoor sports world. And I mean, anybody in that space, if you ask them who Jim is, they're going to know really can't get anywhere else. When I set it up for purchase though, in PayPal, there's, the button creator thing I use doesn't have an option to let you put in more than one. So somebody said they wanted to buy three of them uh, for various people as gifts, and they couldn't put in a quantity. If Until I figure out what's wrong, again, I gotta have, have to have this order in by Friday this week. Just make multiple orders. There's no shipping charge or anything like that because it's all being delivered here. It's a flat fee, so, yeah, there'll be multiple orders, but cost is going to be exactly the same no matter how you do it. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and bring our special guest on, Patrick McKnight. Patrick, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Hey, brother. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. I think this will be a really great discussion. I don't know that we've ever had one (laughs) quite like this before. Okay. Um, Let's start off with your background because when I said like your background kind of had an obvious career path ahead of it, it really did. Um, you have a PhD. Yeah. And I think like biomedical or something
0: yeah, so, like that, right? Yeah. So the PhDs in biochemistry and molecular biology. Okay. Um, just, you know, the real nitty gritty, uh, to get down to it. <clears throat> I studied, uh, inflammatory signaling and wound healing and sepsis. And so the idea was essentially to identify some kind of molecule uh, that we could use to speed up or reset the wound healing process. And a lot of that was funded by the DOD and the veterans hospital out here in Richmond. Um so, yeah, that was the, the bulk of the Ph.D. Um, and then from there, I did a postdoc and, and worked on antibiotic development uh, and then ended up in the pharmaceutical world. And then uh, I'm now back sort of kind of in the academic world doing uh, work uh, with drug discovery and things like that. But it's ironically become more of a hobby than a real job. Uh, funny how that flip flopped. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and I, 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 I think there's a lot of people they're making unconventional choices in their career landscapes today and, and figuring out maybe more diverse ways to use their education.
0: A hundred percent, you know, and, and I guess, I guess, I, don't, I guess we can spill the beans. So I breed snakes for a living now, yeah. um, with my, uh, with my business partner, Andre Kosovich. Um, he actually also came from a medical background and, uh, is a full-time snake breeder as well. So we both took a very similar approach in that sense of, uh, You know, we had this very clear, like you said, career path where we were going to go down things. We had this, you know, whole career arc and, you know, we both have this love for reptiles and and snakes specifically. And we got it as kind of a, you know, a side business, side hustle thing just to help make life more comfortable and build up retirement and things like that. Hmm. And the further along we delved into that, you know, we were making more money selling snakes than we were at our actual jobs. (laughs) And things kind of flip-flopped from there, ironically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now there's there is overlap though, right? I mean, yeah. what you do now is very genetically based. For those yeah. that are not in the the world of snakes and ball pythons and herpetology in general, some of these snakes sell for a lot of money. And, and I'm gonna pull up some pictures in a bit, yeah. and, and maybe some folks can see why. If it's even if it's not your thing, I think we can all appreciate yeah, beauty for sure. But there is a whole envelope of freaking genetics involved yeah. here. A lot of work's been done. So surely your biomed background has helped you in in the way that you've come at this.
0: Um, yeah, there's, there's a few aspects to it. The, the, the pure just science side less at the beginning, more now, as we're starting to develop more genetic tests to identify like genes that indicate like color and pattern and things like that. And more honestly, uh, Early on, it was a lot of uh, time management and learning how to actually interact with animals. Um, We did a lot of animal work in grad school specifically, and, you know, Andre did a lot of animal work. And so that really uh, helped prepare us uh, to get going on some of this stuff. And now the further along the snake breeding industry specifically is gone, um, we've started developing genetic tests to kind of identify genes that can create some of these pattern and color mutations and so we've helped design some of those genetic tests that then we can then run on the animals and get a better idea of what we're breeding which allows us to be significantly more efficient on the breeding side of everything
1: so yeah i hadn't really thought about it that way i mean um to actually be able to know in advance through genetics what you're working with because there's you can get a snake producing offspring a hell of a lot quicker than a person, but there's a significant amount of time invested to find out, well, that really didn't do anything.
0: Yeah, right. no, you know, that's a huge part of it. Um, and that's where right now the industry is kind of seeing this pace, you know, going from like zero to 60 very fast because, you know, the way it used to work, we'd get these animals that were potential carriers for a gene and say albinism. Right. And so we yeah. have an animal that's carrying the albino gene, but you can't see it. And so if you pair two of those animals together, some of the offspring are going to be albino, but then some of them are potentially going to carry the albino gene, but you don't know for sure. Which one, yeah. Exactly. So, So years ago, you would raise those animals up and you would breed them to try and prove out what they were. And so specifically for a ball python, it can take anywhere from two to five years to get your first clutches. And so that's a lot of time and effort you're putting into potentially getting nothing out of it. And uh, and so the genetic testing lets us literally know within a week of the snake hatching whether or not it's carrying the genes for us. So it definitely speeds the process up a lot.
1: Yeah, for people that aren't familiar with this, like when you look at listings on snakes, you'll see uh, known het yeah. or possible het. And that's heterozygous. <laughs> that means that th- exactly what Patrick said, this animal may be carrying this specific gene. And in some instances, you might have a possible Without this testing, that you could also was known for something else, and you could have bred it with a certain combination yeah. for quite valuable offspring, but maybe you've chosen to put it with something else because you're making a gamble. And if it would have come out right, you would have done really well, but it turned out it wasn't, and none of your offspring are carrying that gene, and therefore now you have. $35 snakes instead of $3,500
0: snakes. Yeah. You, that is
1: a real thing. And you've waited five years maybe to find that out.
0: hundred percent. And we actually about three years ago ran into that. I bought a male specifically just to prove out some females and it was not, um, the ideal animal for that pairing, but it was the best option to try and prove these out because if we prove them out then down the road, we could go from there and, you know, ended up missing and, you know, it was wasted time and effort and all of that. And it could have definitely, a been a lot better to be able to just test them. So yeah, hundred percent, it happens. And uh, some people still don't have a lot of faith in the genetic testing. There's people that just don't trust it. And I get yeah. where they're coming from. And I understand there's no judgment there whatsoever, but uh, unfortunately, I, I can but,
1: understand it because yeah. I really haven't played in the hobby much for the last yeah. 15 years, but I remember doing it. And if I go back to like 2000 yeah, and there were some interesting morphs coming out in the King snake world, there was some in the always have been in the ball python world some of the corn snake world, and like today something really common, like a lavender corn or something, yeah, back then, you know that was a three hundred dollar for a right. known uh pair, uh especially even if they were heads. right, so like yeah. a known head pair, so like if you had told me oh we don't we haven't we haven't done it yet, but we uh we tested them, yeah, I might have been keeping my money, right, and yeah, like, I, I don't really know about this, yeah. You know?
0: uh dude I, I completely get it and you know when when we first started going down this this testing path uh my big sales pitch to people was it's less about for the customer right because if you're buying this animal from me you have to trust that ai tested the correct snake yeah. and b i'm not lying to you it yeah. was more on my viewpoint from as a breeder i know that i'm testing the right animals so we're good there yeah. and if i'm a buyer i can then test my animal I've just received and get confirmation that it actually carries what it's supposed to, right? So it's less about specifically just the sales, the point of sale, and more the after sale and the before sale moments.
1: Yeah, I guess and you're really dealing mostly with professional breeders when you're even worrying about this. There is some home hobbyist breeders yeah. like me that breed a little bit, but when somebody's paying fifteen thousand dollars for some <laughs> animals, like they're probably planning on on reselling that. Where the home hobbyist that wants, you know, a a, a ghost or something like yeah. that, they don't, they don't really care that it's het because it doesn't help them because they can't see it. Right. Uh-huh. So unless they're planning on breeding it, they're not worried about these hidden traits as much.
0: Right. A hundred percent. We we every now and then get an inquiry on an animal that is het for something. Yeah. And, and they're asking questions that are very um Pet owner centric, and 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 I don't say that in like a negative tone, but like no, when people, yeah, when people when people message, sometimes you get a tone if it's a pet or if it's going to be like a breeder, and they're asking, you know, these these questions, and you're like, you know, you're you're paying a lot of extra money for that pet, like maybe let's redirect you towards something that's more like for the pet industry, right? Yeah, um, to help save it. So yeah. You're spot on with that, 100%. Yeah, because
1: I mean, it's it's not the hardest thing in the world to breed snakes, but it, it no. takes. It takes some effort. There is yeah. some photo period stuff and things like that. And like you, you have to have a way to, to, to incubate eggs, <laughs> you know, like, so if, well, I think a lot of times maybe people are like they're in their head that one day maybe I will. Yeah, And I, I don't know, I wouldn't be spending a ton of money on, on exotic pets if, unless I had a concrete plan to monetize that.
0: Um. Yeah. You. You probably shouldn't be. There's a lot of people that do just go in head first without.
1: Yeah, I don't want to ruin point. your sales or nothing. No. No. No.
0: No. 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 no, You're not. I promise you're not going to ruin them. We're good. Uh. There's a lot of people. So uh, there's a lot of people that dive in head first without always thinking through stuff. And yeah. I mean, honestly, we all have. Andre and I did the same thing, right? You buy. You start buying in. You're like, this is good. This is good. This is good. And you kind of start figuring out the further along you go, like all right, we need to prune this out. We need to work in this direction. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it happens. It's all it's all part of the learning process in this industry, to say the least.
1: What is your feeling on kind of the industry that you've let go of? Because there's a lot in that. Like, what is your thoughts on biomedical research? Like for all the crap that I give (laughs) the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. There's a lot of things that need work. Right. They need Uh you know, something to treat uh illnesses, disease, genetics, etc. Like where is the space of that business right now?
0: I, I I struggle a lot in this in that whole realm. Um because like there are people doing good work that are that are that truly are there to try and help others. Um there's also a lot of people in there just to uh how do we um to make money and and to not sell a cure, but to sell a treatment. Right. And the yeah. idea is, so it's, it's a real thing. Um, without, you know, going too crazy on it. I, I think there's good and bad and you just need to make sure you're doing the best research you can to make sure you're not diving into the bad intentionally or unintentionally. You know, um, I didn't enjoy working in the pharmaceutical world. Um, it was not my cup of tea at all. Um, it was very much so a machine in a cog, right? There was, There is some, you know, like true research, but a lot of it was we have a disease. We have to find a cure for it or a treatment for it. How do we do that, right? Yeah. And that wasn't what excited me um, in research in general. It's not what got me excited in science to begin with. And so uh, it only took about a year and a half of me realizing that was not the world for me and uh, getting out of there pretty quick. So.
1: And so you made this move over into reptile yeah. running, specifically focused on ball pythons. I can yeah. see why, because there's a lot of there's a lot of high dollar yeah animals in there. Where if you you know you only do so much with a corn snake, so can get so much money out of a corn snake. Sure. And you've also got an animal that, like a Burmese or a retic yeah. or something, mom can buy their kid and know they're not going to have a 47 foot long right. animal in a few years. Um, but can you kind of talk about like the history of reptile breeding and how this actually became an industry cuz this is huge i i noticed yeah. on your instagram that you must have been in uh arlington somewhat recently
0: for, uh yeah uh this weekend yeah actually yeah i would have
1: no i didn't even realize that showed come up um but there's a i mean this is a bit for people that are on the outside of this industry looking in with no real uh connection to it yeah it is a big industry yeah it, it, you know it's maybe not as big as breeding german shepherds but It's a big industry.
0: Yeah, no, it's huge. You know, reptile breeding in general is forever, right? 50s, 60s, 70s. The ball python industry specifically really started taking off in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, We had, you know, some of the pioneers, you know, Brian Barchek, Kevin McCurley, Bob Clark, all these guys that were really like the founders of bringing in the first few mutations and, uh you know, like you said a minute ago, they don't get real big. They're very timid animals. And so the fact that they were really pretty and they were relatively easy to maintain and to keep alive, yeah. uh, made them very, very popular in the pet trade. Uh, and then, you know, that popularity of course drove demand. And so, you know, Bob Clark was asking $10,000 for their first albinos and people thought he was crazy and then he couldn't keep them in stock. And then, you know, along came genetic stripe and ghost and then the piebald, you know, a mutation came along with Peter Call and he was selling them for twenty five thousand dollars and everybody thought he was insane and he couldn't keep those in stock. And so, you know, it it's grown over the years and it's had its ups and downs, but you know, right now it's probably a fifty to eighty million dollar a year industry just in ball pythons. Um that's not including, you know, the other species. I, I don't keep track real heavily on their market specifically, but you know, the reptile trade in general is probably a hundred and fifty, two hundred million easy at this point. It's it's continually growing.
1: Definitely. And so what was it about ball pythons reptiles in general that made you say, like, this is where I want this is where I want to put my effort to? Like, because, yeah, I know you said you didn't particularly love pharmaceutical, <laughs> but it is not a horrible. You know, it's not a horrible paying world to be part of. So. Right. I know you said you ended up starting to make more money doing this. But then there's always risk with entrepreneurialism. What made you say like this? I'm doing this.
0: Yeah. um, So I come from a very entrepreneurial family. Um, A lot of my family, there's self starters. Um, I was the kid growing up that was buying and selling Pokemon cards, you know, making, you know, always had a side hustle. Uh, I paid for my undergrad education with Pokemon cards. Um, And then uh, as I started getting into a real job, uh, my wife jokes and always says that I'm just unmanageable. And so I knew I was going to need a job that was going to let me kind of live my life, right, and do things on, on my own set of, you know, standards. Um, and so, you know, we got into the ball pythons originally as a hobby. It was just going to be that side piece and things were going well and it, it was just naturally growing and, and Andre and I had a passion for it. And, you know, we had separate companies at the time and we were competing constantly. And it was It was great fun. And, and there kind of came this turning point uh, right around COVID where uh, I had just left the pharmaceutical world. I was working in a lab, but it was 100% remote. So I had a lot more free time. So we were able to dedicate a ton more time to the snakes and things just really took off from there. And then about a year later, Andre came to me and was like, hey, things are working out well for both of us. Let's you know team up and let's really absolutely fucking crush it. And uh, and so we merged companies and I think it's just a joint passion of We love the animals. We love what we work with. Um, It's always exciting when we produce clutches. Uh, You don't always know what you're going to get out of it. It's always a surprise to see what pops out of the egg. So it keeps things exciting. Um, And then as you know, there's long term planning that goes with this as well. Right. So you get that that sense of accomplishment as you achieve certain goals. And, you know, we talk about projects that we start today. We may not see the end goal of that project for 10 years. And so there's a lot of drive and passion that goes into trying to create those animals as well.
1: Yeah. And it's I think there's a lot of people that wonder if they can turn their hobby into a business. Like, is there really money there? And I guess my thing is, if you're in some sort of hobby that that has stores that are dedicated to serving you, somebody's making money. If you are in some sort of a hobby where thousands of people stand in line to get in a building to look at stuff. Somebody's making money at it. And I'm describing the reptile space pretty well right there. Like there's yeah. stores and you know, I mentioned uh N A N A R B C, which is a North American reptile breeders conference, something like that yeah. conference. Yeah. And if you've never been to one, you might not realize how many freaks like Patrick and I there <laughs> are that will stand out in the cold waiting to get in. And like right. when some of the names he was uh reading off earlier like Bob Clark. I remember like the first time I met Bob Clark. yeah To meet like a celebrity, right? Is, right like, This dude did all this work and I'm trying to think of the guy that was behind corn snakes.net now too. I've met him a few
0: Oh, times. mercy. Oh my goodness. That's that I was I think of that his time, name but, but yeah. like Yeah. Uh
1: he was like the guy that made the corn snake yeah. America's pet snake, you know? Right. And uh uh, I can't think of his last name now either. Neil, so-and-so that he, he's from university of Texas. He's done probably more work with African house okay, states, okay. Right, than anybody else in the world at this point. Yeah. And like, so I think the problem is a lot of times people say, well, this is just a hobby or whatever. And I've always said like, you can crush anything. If it's a hobby for you, it's probably a hobby for thousands and tens yes. of thousands of other people.
0: I a hundred percent. So, so. All of this kind of got rolling, like I said, with the Pokemon cards, right? And, and that was something I, I, I enjoyed. I collected as a kid, you know, sports cards, all of that. Yeah. And and it literally started as something. I found my old Pokemon cards in a closet, um, and I took them up to a comic book shop, and they said, we'll give you this much for it. And I was shocked and stunned. I was like, Pfft. all right, well, we're going to keep doing this because we can make some money, right? And and that's like the epitome of that hobby kind of started. there. And the snakes, you know, Andre and I, you know, we talk about it all the time. It literally started as something we just did for fun to help make a little bit of extra money on the side, and you start putting a little more time into it and some effort, and there's a little direction that goes into that, and you can turn it into a real business. And, and like you said, that applies to anything. I have friends that sell shoes, like, you know, a collectible, like, basketball sneakers. I had no idea that's an industry. Uh fountain pins. <laughs> I I have a friend that literally like she was like, Hey, I collect fountain pins. Do you want to go to a pen show in Washington? And I was
1: and like, there's like a show for yes. friends, right? Have, yeah. Literally
0: a show for like ballpoint pins and fountain pins. And I'm like, I I had no idea. And it's incredible. And and there's so many niche opportunities like that. the, the reptiles honestly were like that initially. You know, I I stumbled into ball pythons. I, I grew up loving reptiles like most people. Um that you know end up with pet snakes and stuff but I had a dog die and I was like absolutely heartbroken and I was like I'm never going to deal with this again so I was like I'm (laughs) going to get a pet tortoise because they live forever because that's how I fix the problem in my head right and uh and so we end up at a reptile show and I see the snakes and I'm like oh (laughs) these are expensive and these are really pretty like we might be able to do something with this so yeah it's it's and you know kind of stumble into those niche hobbies for sure
1: yeah, I'm just answering the pool dude, and letting him know that we're going to kill him.
0: No, you're like good. I, said,
1: man. I, got, I told you earlier before we started. Yeah. Without without life, it's me. <laughs> No, and I do. I think people really don't understand like how big some of these are. Like, and then even within the niche, the niches within the niche. Like yeah. so we went into like ball pythons, and that's yeah. probably one of the bigger niches within reptiles. But like for
0: sure, right now, yeah.
1: But like you know, you go to one of these conferences, and there's like people like their whole life is freaking poison dart frogs. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, that's like their entire life, uh, and they want like one of every freaking yeah. frog, and they have ter- like a room full of terrariums, and they're yeah. worried about what freaking springtail they're putting in the substrate, and they're like paying ridiculous amounts of yes. money for springtails, which is a little arthropod critter for. that crawls around in the substrate, and like
0: yeah, you know, I mean, I, we I have, don't
1: care what it is, I think that. If people love a thing, there's a way to monetize it.
0: A hundred percent agree. I mean, look, isopods are roly-polies, right? That's a whole yeah. industry right now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, And they're not really? cheap. Like, they're shockingly expensive. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you're spot on. Any any Anything you do that you're putting effort into and you get enjoyment out of, like you said, I promise there's other people that have that same feeling. And it really just comes down to putting some effort in and really trying to monetize that hobby. If you want, I understand some people do a hobby just for the fun of it. And, and, and maybe, uh, Andre and I are a little broken in that part of, you know, what I call our hobby is making money. Like we do enjoy putting work in and putting effort in, and and that, you know, reward is financially sometimes, but yeah, yeah, man, it's, there's a million industries out there and there's a, a lot of opportunity, especially now where we have social media, we have the internet, you know, we have YouTube, we have all these opportunities to not just do something, but also advertise it and show it to the world. And it just, it takes effort. Right. And that's the important part. What do
1: you, ha, what do you get out of like your particular niche when it comes to like working with animals? Yeah. Like you mentioned like when they hatch, you don't know what you're going to get. I think there's something in that. Like, well, dark and i pick seashells up. It's freaking seashells, <laughs> but you never know what you're going to find. So you're yeah. kind of, you kind of like, you, you're kind of dug into that. I, for me, I kind of went crazy with it for a while, and it's kind of why I stopped. Is you know, I grew up as a kid; there wasn't really cable. We used to watch, you know, PBS and watch Marlon Perkins. And one day I was going to be like Marlon Perkins and work with animals, like what what about this kind of really pulls at you to make you want to uh, do this versus anything else
0: yeah i mean there's there's a there's a couple aspects right uh first is the goal the goal oriented aspect of it like being able to long-term plan and work towards a goal is very just fulfilling you know emotionally um another kind of weird part I, i i'm cursed with the productivity monster i feel like i have to be being productive constantly Okay. Um, I did Bitcoin mining for a while because I felt like as long as that miner was running, I was being productive. Yeah. And it really like filled it. Um. So once snakes start laying eggs, those eggs are cooking, and as long yeah. as those eggs are cooking, that means money is being made okay. in my mind, right? right? And so it feeds that productivity monster. Um. And then also, like you said, like there's a, it feeds a little bit of the gambling aspect, right? Like we yeah. put some of these pairings together, and Andre and I will sit and we'll talk. And we're like, okay, we can do this. What are the odds on this? And you really, you're doing a lot of math and figuring out the odds of hitting certain animals. And, and man, there's, there's a lot of excitement when those heads start popping out of the eggs and you've either like absolutely, you know, crushed it or, you know, sometimes you miss out and it is what it is. But I think it also feeds, so it feeds the productivity monster. It feeds the gambling monster. And then also, like I said, like there's a lot of long-term work. And so you get a lot of fulfillment as you work through projects and you hit milestones as you're going through the industry. Um, and then also it like really helps having a friend like Andre to like bounce stuff off of and, and, and work hand in hand with at this point, you know, it was very different when I was running the company by myself versus having a partner that now we can interact and we can share in the success and he can yell at me when things go wrong. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's great. So I think that also helps a lot is having a friend that really is there to help through the good and the bad times.
1: Can you kind of talk about like the trade-offs? Like, cause like when you were in biomed you go talk to somebody what do you do I'm a biomedical researcher oh wow right you know yeah and there is a certain amount of stability like you're not gonna have like a lot of people lose jobs but you're probably not gonna lose a job there so you have this security kind of prestige thing and what do you do now I breed snakes right and like there's people like me to be like that's cool as shit but I'm not the majority when it comes to let
0: me let me tell you I struggled so much with that so right out of grad school I, I started working at the university of Virginia and, and Virginia Commonwealth university, doing a little bit of biotech consulting and my head was just huge. Right. I'm like, oh, I'm a biotech consultant, blah, 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 yeah. blah. And I took so much pride in that, like, because I, I had this title, right. And I was doing this stuff, but it didn't, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the business side of stuff, but I didn't love it. Right. And I was breeding snakes. And like I said, at the time, Andre and I were making significantly more breeding these snakes than I was at my actual job. And, and I, I would sit down with friends and I'm like, I don't know why I'm embarrassed to say I breed snakes for a living. Because mm. it's cool and I, I it enjoy cool. it. Um and, and there was just something that, that flipped eventually when I realized like all the people that were douchebags and were shitty to me when I was a biotech consultant were the same people that were gonna be shitty to me if I was a snake breeder. And honestly, like the conversations I get to have as a snake breeder are infinitely better. Um and, and as far as like the trade off, um, yeah, I mean Look, anytime you're going into business uh, for yourself and you're walking away from another company paying your bills, it's scary. Uh, you know, we yeah. we 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 have budgets now and, you know, we look at the monthly sales and expenses and we're like, Whoa, things are getting tighter. Are we going to make payroll? And uh, and so there, you do lose some of that, but you have a lot more freedom. You know, Andre and I work when we want to work. Um, you know, we have offset schedules. We're at, you know, the facilities at different times and, and when he needs time to go and be with his family or he wants to work a specific schedule to fit his family, he doesn't have to check with a boss. He just lets, yeah. you know, me know, Hey, I'm not going to be in today. Cool. We're good. Like we work around that. And when I need to go out of town for a reptile convention or whatever it is, there's no asking for time off. There's no worry on any of those aspects. You get a lot more freedom with it. Um, and and it's stressful. Look, I'm not going to pretend like it's not, but but that's also what we get paid for. I had a I had a really close friend the other day we were talking and he's a he's a much much bigger snake breeder than we are. And and he told me he's like Patrick the reason we we get paid what we get paid is for the stress. It's the not knowing if you're going to get paid tomorrow. It's not only of that. And I think that's for any entrepreneur, anybody that transitions from a hobby to an actual business, if you're comfortable and your appetite for risk is is high enough, it's absolutely in my mind worth it. Um, I love it, you know, and and I don't want to sit here and pretend like snakes are not the only income at this point. Like I said, I still have a position at UVA. It's kind of turned in more of my hobby at this point where I work a few hours a week. Um, But it also keeps me in the science and things that I do enjoy as well. But I get great benefits and retirement through the university. So um, <laughs> it's really tough to also give that up. Right. Because there is some stability in there as well. Um, yeah. Andre was much braver than me. And he jumped right all in, you know, and so this is all that's paying his bills exclusively and more power to him. Um, and I'm sure he'll find another side hustle sooner or later because he clearly has too much time. Right.
1: Yeah. Is there anything specifically as a breeder yeah. that with ball pythons? Like we, we've mentioned that there's there's money in that space. Yeah, it definitely is. But are there any unique challenges like. When I was, the reason I knew Neil from UT is that I played around with trying to do something unique with African house snakes. And African house snakes, like, if you rub two of them together, babies come out. Like, there's, it's really easy. Like, the only challenge with them is getting them to take their first meal because they're about as big as a toothpick when they're born. Right. Like, getting them to eat a half a pinky or something, it can be hard, but breeding them is easy. Is there anything uniquely challenging about balls or like, when you have that snake born that looks like it's worth $20,000 and it won't freaking eat or something like that, you know, like,
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, in general ball pythons are about as easy as it comes before okay. just being fully honest. It's about as easy as it comes. Uh, you can rub them together. They're going to make babies. Okay. Uh, they are known for being picky eaters, but that's only when you compare them to like, you know, giant constrictors like retics or berms, uh, that are just, you know, ferocious eaters. Um, ball pythons in general are pretty good eaters as well. You do get the, you do get the baby here and there that is like, has just decided it's never going to eat. Yeah. We do, it's called assist feeding. So we take a, you know, a pre-killed rodent and, you know, gently more or less like, you know, force the, the rodent down the throat. <laughs> right. Um. That's generally like very last course of action. Yeah. Um, but honestly, that's part of the allure of ball pythons to a lot of people is they're very easy and you can do it. The Honestly, the, Biggest issue that people stumble into with ball pythons, and, and I find this in reptiles in general, is they think that they're going to buy two snakes, and then they're going to breed them, and they're going to make a million dollars tomorrow. <laughs> and 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 that's not honestly reptile specific. There were a lot of yeah. pharmaceutical people that were equally as stupid, um, yeah. or willfully ignorant. Maybe not stupid, but um,
1: yeah.
0: And so. The biggest issue is just teaching people like patience and a little bit of planning. That's actually the hardest part of all of this is having a game plan and and prepping and properly properly being prepared to move into this industry and, and try and do something with it. Uh, as far as the husbandry and care, like one of like I said, they're 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 very 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 hardy animals. Yeah, you can tolerate a very large you know temperature range uh they will eat once they get going yeah they're they're great pets in general
1: yeah because i think what you said about the person like, i'm gonna buy two snakes breed them and make a million dollars or whatever like in a weird way it makes me think of like the last time i went to shot show in like 2013 and one <laughs> yeah. of my buddies was there and there was so many people that were exhibiting that weren't winchester or Browning, whatever they're all custom rifle makers and it was like 100 freaking dudes building AR-15s. And my course, buddy comes up right? and goes, I got this idea, man. We <laughs> could start a gun company and build custom guns, and we should build AR-15s, and they should be black. And we should put accessories on them, and people will buy them. And it's like, yeah, he was just mocking the whole thing. Like, yeah, every yeah. one of these guys acted like they were the only ones doing it. And one of the challenges I've seen with like the emerging uh, morphs is, is what yeah. we're called in the space is like this new morph of ball Python will come out Yeah, and it's something no one's, and it's not like somebody took two knowns and stuck them together. Like somebody found a new trade right. and like, oh my God, there's like, it's an opal blue, you know, unicorn, uh, right. ball Python $20,000 a piece, you know, for a, a pair. and And by the time that those two little snakes grow up, well, a lot of other people have done that. And there's yeah. not only a few of them available anymore because you're not the only person with the right. idea to like breed the unicorn opal blue snake. Exactly. Right? Like right? Everybody read that same copy of reptile magazine and, <laughs> you know, it said, I want that too. Yeah. And so the supply is always short in the beginning and the lag between the short supply and the long supply is pretty constant for everybody. Yes. You know, and I, I don't think people realize that when they jump in with both feet.
0: No. And and I think too, and and I've explained this. So, so we do, we do reptile business consulting specifically as well. It's a service that we've started offering because people desperately cool. need it in our industry. And, and that's one of the things we talk about. Like if I come in and I buy a $20,000 snake, if I'm assuming that that snake is going to sell for $20,000 next year, I'm I'm already starting off on the wrong foot. Like you said, like people also have also bought that $20,000 snake. The supply is yeah. going to be, but if you're pairing it to the right things and you're properly planning, I don't need to make $20,000 a snake to be profitable, right? Like ball pythons on average lay between six and eight eggs per once a year. So as long as let's say we take that $20,000 snake and pair it to two or three females, you end up with, let's just say 15, you know, or 16 eggs. Half of them carry that trait. Honestly, as long as that snake is selling for three or four thousand dollars, yeah. we're still profitable. Oh yeah, and, so. and people lose and that's just year one. And so I think people sometimes they they overextend a lot. They purchase animals they don't need to purchase. They're buying this on credit or refinancing their home or whatever it is. They can't afford it. And if they're not making money immediately, they're in trouble because this is not an industry that, you know, you're getting you know, revenue quickly, right? There's not constant cash flow at the beginning. Once you're established and you have clutches regularly, it becomes that. But in the beginning you may have three to five years before you don't see a penny. Yeah. And if you're not able, or you don't have the cash or the capital to survive that runway, you're, you're going to be in trouble. It's going to happen. And and honestly, that's, that's a problem we're seeing right now in the industry. There are a lot of COVID breeders, right? We had a lot of free money that flew in and, oh. and, uh, man, things were great for, uh, For breeders, my God, it was a great time to sell snakes. But a lot of people that were paying top dollar for animals and thinking they were going to make bajillions of dollars are now realizing that's not the case, right, as the economy goes down and snake pricing has gone down, things are tight. And, you know, you're seeing a lot of people that came in real hot and heavy and they're uh, they're starting to work their way out, unfortunately. And it was a lot of lack of planning. And honestly, some of those people we talked to and they just ignored, you know, advice. And that's like it goes back to the... Be planned, be prepped. Find somebody that knows what they're doing, and and get guidance from them in that in that sense.
1: Let's talk a little bit more about kind of the interplay. Like you mentioned, yeah. you have this testing. Yeah, that you guys have developed. Is that like is that something that probably would have never happened without the professional background <laughs> that you have? So.
0: Uh, So the the genetic testing initially, the first test came out from the University of Eastern Michigan with Hannah Seidel, actually. Um, So it was a a PhD. She basically wanted to use Ball Python genetics to teach her students how to do genetics. It was really cool. Okay. Um, And then there was a friend of mine, um, and he he wanted to basically... um, turn this into a business, right? And so he also had a huge background in snakes. He has a PhD. And so he started this process of starting this company, RGI, Rare Genetic um, Reptiles. And so you, we started helping him, and we were able to develop these tests, and they've you know really taken off with it. Um, I, I, it would have happened whether I was involved or not. Let's just gotcha. be honest. It would not have happened – without other PhD scientists, most likely, uh, whether I was involved or not, it was going to yeah. happen. I just helped speed up the process and getting it to market much faster.
1: Uh, well, so uh, yeah, that's one of those things that sooner or later was going to happen because there's too much money at stake for it. Right. not to, Right. Exactly. Like yeah. If there's a demand for a thing and it's possible, it will be.
0: Yeah. hundred <laughs> I mean, like, percent. No, it's like, I'd love to take more credit, but honestly I, I helped speed up the process. Um, did a lot with them. I love doing it, but, uh, Yeah, Hannah Seidel, I think, would be the one who deserves, honestly, all of the credit for starting this whole process. Um, She had a passion for it. She wanted to teach students how to do stuff with it. And she just had no desire to turn it into a business, right? And that's where other people kind of took up the lead and went from there. I
1: I would think one of the other things that's probably played well from a business standpoint is that what you did is a very meticulous profession, right? Like, you can't Mm -hmm. just throw all your shit in a box and whichever one works. Oh, it was, it was, it was sample B. Like right. everything has to be records kept all the way through. Very meticulous. So that when you mm-hmm. observe something that's not supposed to be, or is a happy thing, like, you know exactly how you got there. And yeah. I know from playing around with some breeding myself that like, you have to keep really great records. Oh, and yeah. if you don't, you can, it's like you and your buddies get together, have a few too many drinks, throw something on the grill. And it's the best thing you ever made, but you can't do it again because you don't remember what you did because you were drunk when you did it.
0: That's it, man. You it's can't the let worst. That
1: happen, right?
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. So, like, uh, a lot of the science background, ironically, uh, it was more so the grad school training. And, and Andre, you know, the same thing when he was going to school, learning how to run, you know, medical laboratories and stuff. You learn how to be ridiculous. You learn how to manage your time you learn how to make sure you're noting everything and following everything so it's it's the attention to detail honestly i think that's one of the things we do best and part of why we've been so successful is it's the record keeping it's the attention to detail it's the knowing exactly what's going on and being able to optimize when we breed based on that you know we ultrasound our animals uh so that we can track egg development within the females so we can know the perfect time in order to pair up the male with the female okay. all right um, and we 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 have you know years and years and years of data so that on some of these females you know we still ultrasound but we almost don't even have to anymore because we know like oh she starts cycling at this time of the year okay we're able to extend um how many females we can breed a male to because we're being very targeted and so a lot of breeders will just pair you know a male to a female twice a week and they get you know eight lock eight pairings a month and that's about it and and you may only you know that male only may only go to six to eight females for the whole year. Whereas if you're being really targeted, you can get 10, 15. Okay. I've, heard of, I've heard of people getting as many as 20. We've never stretched it that far. It's intense. But, um, but yeah, so it's, it's all of that. It, it it allows us to just be a lot more targeted in what we do and a lot more efficient in what we do for sure. Um, And then being on top of the husbandry and all that things, right. Just like anything else, if animals are happy, they're going to produce for you. They're going to be better for you in general. And so being on top of those, uh you know cleaning schedules and making sure everything is pristine and clean really helps as well with production which helps us in the long run
1: yeah yeah um how exactly do you go to market um i know you have a website but yeah uh when i look at it it looks like you pretty much sell on morph market which yeah. is like a it's a big giant site for people like us that the rest of y'all won't care about right? You know what it is or you don't, but it's where freaks like us go to buy really cool snakes and other yeah. stuff. Right. Uh, is, but is, is that primarily how you go to market? Do you, you know, have yeah. working relationships with other breeders? Do you have a storefront or do you just not do that part of it?
0: Or? Yeah. So, so the answer has evolved over the years, right? So early on you had Kingsnight.com, you had, um, Fawn classifieds. Those were kind of the initial off. Yep. Uh, Facebook came along and a lot of sales started getting done on Facebook, but then, you know, they become crazy socialists and don't let us list animals on there anymore. So, you know, shocking. I know. Uh, and so,
1: There's all this shit to ban. <laughs> you right. can't sell things. Like
0: I know. I know. It's like, really? Do we really care that much? But anyway. yeah. Oh, excuse me. One sec. <laughs> hmm. Sorry. I'm just getting over a cold. Um, and so now Morph Market is the main outlet uh, for just about all breeders. Um, okay. What it is, it, it made it easy to list animals and to be able to search by Morph. We, we do a lot of business word of mouth. We're big enough now. We have a big enough circle of influence that we have customers that regularly come back to us. We have international sales that hit us up several times a year. Um, so we do a lot outside of Morph Market. But I'm willing to bet 60 to 70 percent of our business, you know, siphon straight through Morph Market at the moment. Um, And honestly, until there's a competing site with Morph Market, it'll probably continue to be that way because they get the most foot traffic and you're going to get the most views for your buck at that point. For sure.
1: Yeah. And there's that's like another way to look at this. Right. There's people that think. Uh, how could I turn my hobby into a profession or an entrepreneurial thing or something like that? And yeah. one of their, one of their animals right there for sale for $20,000 <laughs> and I went for 15 and I went for 11 Yeah, and it starts to add up, you know, yeah. you start moving some animals like that. But this website also makes a lot of money and there's always room for innovation. Yes. Uh, because I remember like when you were mentioning King snake, I remember when the Kingsnake.com dot <laughs> That was the shit. Yeah. Anybody that was looking for, especially if you were looking for something either really expensive or just hard to find. Let's say some rat snake species from Asia or something that you didn't find. Like you could always find the things you couldn't find there. And that site today, I don't. Have any idea how successful it is, but I, from it's, looking at it, it doesn't look like it's really, it, anyway. it
0: is the exact same site that it was 15 years ago. Yeah. It's not updated at all. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, we joke all the time, we're like, we need to make King State great again. Um, but <laughs> it, uh, yeah, man, it's times have evolved. People still sell on it though. I mean, there's still some surprisingly large breeders that advertise and put stuff on it. I, I, I think that's also part of. You know, if you're going to try and monetize a hobby is find find not just the niche industry you're interested in, but find out how you can sell the animal. If you sell a bunch of animals on Kingstake and that's your most profitable metric, go for it. If you do better on Morph Market, do it there. If you do better, you know, telecalls, whatever it is, find a way to, you know, monetize it and go with that. There's no shame in doing that at all.
1: I guess what I'm saying, though, too, is that look for the opportunities on the periphery. Mm -hmm. So if you can do web development and you love something, you might be able to develop the next great platform to sell on for that thing. Um, And I tell people this all the time, like people that are really in, like they would really want to be a professional athlete, but you're just, you're not gonna do you're you're a five foot nine inch white dude that wants to play basketball. And you, you, and you ain't one of these freaks that can dunk at that height. Right. It's not happening. But then I know that same dude who is now, you know, coaching uh high school basketball yeah. and making six figures right there's always these peripheral ways into the thing that you love and sometimes it involves taking a thing that you could do as a career and merging it with the thing that you want to do right like uh, biomedical uh, research and right thanks right yeah
0: a hundred percent and i think you make a good point and like sometimes people look at it like oh i can't get into that industry but like you said somebody's going to make a competitor to morph market at some point because they, that overlap right of passion and knowledge is going to happen um, and that's a great outlook whether and, and it's not just necessarily sales right like we're in desperate need of better like collection management software and so there's people now that are starting Ooh. to write and develop that code and so there's lots of niche areas within the niche 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 industries right yeah and so like you said it, it's it's not just looking at the obvious look at the periphery look what's missing uh, and especially if you're in a hobby, Ask yourself the question: What's my pain point? What 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 would make my life easier in this hobby? And if that doesn't really exist, maybe that's something worth looking into, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I knew a guy, for instance, worked for me, uh, and he built this thing on his own after he quit working for me. But he was a musician, and when I, I he was a web developer, and when I hired him, I'm like, "What do you do? I ride motorcycles and I play in a <laughs> band," and I'm like. So does every other (laughs) 28-year-old. Turned out like this dude was like in a legit band, like kind of like metal type. Not my taste, but legit. Like you know, not you're not gonna be on the radio or selling out giant stadiums or like one level below that. Sure. Competition uh, motorcycle rider and shit. And I didn't know anything about. The, the music industry and he right. did cause he was part of it. And he, he was like, we make all our money on merchandise. You play the concerts oh, and the yeah. places for, so, and so like they end up even these like mid tier bands with managers to take a pretty decent cut, yep. but it's all about making sure that everything gets delivered and shipped and inventory and everything. So he built a website that automated that. yeah Right. Like, so like, that's what I'm saying. Like you have no idea what the next step is, but you could, right. and you, you figure it out and you can build it first. There's gotta be things that even in your industry that it would be yeah. great if we had them and we don't.
0: Uh, for sure. But even, even something like, you know, content creation, right? Like you don't have to have a million snakes to start a YouTube channel or social media oh, following and turn that into stuff. Right. True. That's, there's multiple breeders that I know that they started with 10, 15 snakes and they created a, you know, YouTube empire off of that initial stuff. Right. And, and so I think that's also a little bit of figure out what you're good at. And if you're good at the, you know, social media side of it, there's a lot that you can do on that side too. So it's not, like I said, it's not. It's looking for those little niches that you can slip in that you enjoy, and, and you don't have to have a massive collection, you know, in the snake world. You don't have to have a lot of, you know, knowledge. You can start with showing off your animals and talking about your experiences of what it's like owning these things, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, guys, I'm really trying to tell you, like, it's anything.
0: <clears throat> I'm literally
1: your thing. We mentioned the snake shows, but I went to a a fish aquarium show. Yeah, a few years ago, called Aquashella here in Dallas. Yeah, and it literally was freaking a thousand people in line waiting to get it.
0: It's incredible, isn't to it? A
1: freaking fish show.
0: I love it to, so much. And it's the biggest so cool.
1: attraction there was a dude named Corey who had a <laughs> website called Aquarium Co-op, and he built a massive YouTube channel. And there were there was like another couple hundred people inside waiting in line to talk to Corey for five minutes each, right?
0: So we have we have that equivalent is is Emily and Ed of Snake Discovery, and they have you know like three million followers on YouTube and. When they come to the reptile shows, we all know like havoc is about to break loose because there's going to literally be 10,000 people in line just to go say hi to them. It's, and that's, I mean, you talked to Emily and Ed, they started in their house in a basement, like just fucking around with a couple of snakes and making yeah. YouTube videos of it. And now, you know, it's this multi million dollar industry and they have a zoo and it, a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of luck, and a lot of effort can take you a yeah. long way. And, and, and like you said, it's anything. I mean, Uh, we did sports cards, Pokemon cards. I have friends, like I said, fountain pens, I mean, sneakers, I mean, my God, guns, obviously like, you know, there's a whole industry right around collectible weapons. I mean, that's a great industry and not just weapons, actually just memorabilia in general, you know, war memorabilia. One of my really close friends, uh, he collects war memorabilia. And so he always goes to this big show in Indiana and he just comes back. He's like, Oh, I bought a world war two, German parachute. And I'm like, cool. Is that like valuable? He's like, you have no idea. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Or he'll be like, I bought, you know, a sprocket from a panzer tank. And I'm like, I don't know the words you're saying, but it sounds really cool. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it is, it
1: is in everything. Like, um, there's a dude I follow on YouTube named Brant and he has a a YouTube channel angler up with Brant. He was a fishing guide. He's not a guide anymore. (laughs) Right. Because he makes so much money off of his content, it's he uh-huh. doesn't want to deal with taking people up as clients right. anymore, and he has like a real estate side business now. But yeah. he makes all his money really on YouTube, going out fishing. Yeah. But you know, if you go back, the, the thing is, don't be afraid to start because like if you go back to the beginning of his channel, his videos were crap.
0: Let me, you know, so it's
1: everybody's cl- was right. I mean, got to learn your profession.
0: It's so funny you say that. So we we for years talked about starting a podcast just to like kind of increase the audience and, and interact with customers on a little bit more personal base. Right. And for years I didn't because I was so worried that it wouldn't be perfect. I was like, it's gonna be crap, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't until about a month and a half ago we finally started it up. Right. And it's absolute dog shit right now. It's terrible, but we're having a blast and that's the most important part. Um, and you know, it gets better every episode. So I think like you just said, the hardest part is that first step. it's making that decision. It's taking that first step, understanding you're not going to be great at it right off the bat. It's not going to make you a million dollars right off the bat. It's going to take some effort. It's going to take a little bit of work, but with work and effort, you can go a long way. So yeah, I love it.
1: Very cool. So, um, do you have any other examples of people who have maybe taken the direction you have or, uh, what this has meant for you even as far as your, your life, you know, you mentioned the freedom, et cetera.
0: (sighs) Yeah um I mean I have multiple friends I mean most of my friends in the industry uh, you know started in relatively speaking regular jobs and it started as a hobby that was in their closet and then you know grew and grew and grew and has now become full-time jobs Uh, one of our close friends produces uh, reptile substrates so like the bedding that we put our snakes on they it's a coconut husk and you know he was a uh, you know special ops, military guy. He was doing, you know, service, you know, uh, security details, all this, all this crazy stuff. You hear his stories and it's incredible. And then he just started doing this reptile bedding company and that's become, you know, his main gig. Right. And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people and, and what it's been, you know, for my life and Andre's life specifically is it, it gives us the opportunity to, to not just have freedom and, and flexibility. It also lets us earn a living to the point where we can live comfortably, right? We're we're able to put money aside for the future. We're able to plan for the future. Um and so that's been a big part of it as well that like never would have happened if we had stayed in our, you know, specific, you know, jobs. We would have made good money. But uh the opportunity to not just make one income but two helped and then, you know, have a significant second income that became our full time income really helped, right? And so now that lets us put money in the bank so that now we can start having conversations about purchasing land and setting up a homestead and all this other stuff that never would have been able to do before. Right. And, and it's so exciting to, you know, my wife's over here like, well, once we get the land, we can set up a tiny farm. And I'm like, that sounds great. And she, I'm like, then we can make our own meat. And she's like, absolutely not. And (laughs) (laughs) so, you know, so yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's what it's provided is an opportunity to, you know, increase our standard of living, which is, I think, a really important aspect, but also make us feel a little more secure about the future, right? Be able to stockpile that stuff and not have to worry about when we're 60, 70 years old, what's going on. Hopefully. I mean,
1: was there a point you had a kind of like that aha moment where you're like this, like I did, this was the right choice. That This was what I was supposed to do.
0: Oh, I don't know if I've had that moment yet. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No. Um, yeah, you know, it was probably February, uh, March, April time, actually, of this year when Andre and I merged companies. I okay. think, um, and the reason I say that, like, we did really well through COVID, but I, I was still, like, still hanging on the fence of, like, should I stay in academia? I had, you know, a very clear path to go, and and I, I knew all the steps I could take to go forward, and and Andre and I merged, and things were just easier. The business ran smoother. Um, the arguments and fights that I thought I was going to have with a co-owner of a company weren't really happening. We were arguing over minutia and it felt like more like we were a married couple at that point. I was like, Oh, I think this is going to work. We're going to be good. Yeah. And, and, and things every now and then, you know, they get tight. It is what it is like, you know, like, so with the economy sales, sometimes are down, but we're still making good money. Uh, we get along really well and we don't argue. So I think in that moment, I was kind of like, we made the right decision. I think this is the way to go with this. And, you know, I don't think I would do things differently at this point. Yeah.
1: I think there is a point when a business becomes successful enough that it's not even where it's going to be, but you know that it's going to get there someday. Yeah. Like, you know, you've, you've made the right call for me. It was not wanting to kill people anymore.
0: Yes. Like I would get, I would get home from my <laughs>
1: office and I was like, see, I, I watched this thing one time on a, uh, like wrestlers, like yeah. professional wrestlers. Yeah. Like, and that's all fake and shit, but there is like a certain acting level. That of they course. Have to do sure. a character they have to be in. And they were talking about how when Macho Man would come home off the road, he would stay in a hotel for a day or two before oh, he went home.
0: To decompress. Because yeah.
1: he didn't want to be that person when he walked in with <laughs> wife and kids. Right. And it might not have, it might've right. been somebody else, but I, I think it was, yeah, no, I get random, Yeah. Right. But yeah. that was the whole, like, I have to get out of this character set. And what I used to tell my wife when I, you know, get home from work and I would just, ugh. and yeah. she'd be like, I don't know how you can be the way I'm like, you know, you're a better person than me, but it's people like me that make your world possible. right? Like, like somebody has to do this shit, but then yeah. I realized like, well, maybe it doesn't have to be me anymore. And when I started doing this show and I did it, I did it in my car for the first 18 months. I started to get home and not want to punch a hole in the wall and like, and I'm like, Oh, so this was what it feels like when you're doing the thing that you're actually meant to be doing, you no yeah. longer just look to your fellow man as like targets. Right. Like, right. <laughs> and, and so like, there was that piece of it. There was also the piece of it. Like when, when I first turned on revenue and yeah. money came, then it was like, okay, not only do I feel like this is the right thing to do, it's also sustainable and I can count
0: on it. I I think we've had a few moments where we talk to other breeders and and like you know I, I harp on a little bit the, the economy's down right and so sales are tough just in general and and if you're not evolving with that especially in this industry it's hard and so when I speak to other people and they talk about how things are for them and then you know we look at our bottom line and things are going well you're like oh we did make the right decision like things are working out well and like we're succeeding even in a downtime and I think that's also like a big win in our minds is. We're we're paying the bills, you know, for the business and for our families and still putting some money aside in a down economy. And if that's the case and we can survive this, uh, when things go back up again, it's just, you know, it's going to be fantastic. So I think there's also, like you talked about, the money coming in aspect. The the fact that money continues to come in and come in at a consistent rate is a good indicator that I think we made the right decision as well. So for sure.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the things people have to get in their head, too, like this whole – The economy's down and all, that's a a thing. Less total revenue, that's a thing. But if you're not adapting to that as that's occurring, like when I used to do business consulting, when I would talk to a potential client and they would say something to the effect of, well, when things pick up, (laughs) I would go, okay, so you can't afford me. uh, You're not going to do what I tell you to do. And you're going to be bankrupt because you're not going to do what I'm going to tell you to do. because Your mind is not in the right place because you think that, It'll all fix itself, so I don't even know why I'm here. And they would get very upset, yeah. but what they were doing is they were making that excuse. Things are down because the economy's bad. Well, I thought you had me here to help you grow your business. <laughs> so clearly there's something you could be doing that you're not, and if we can't get to that place together, then we can't do this. That's part of why I hated consulting. Yeah. Oh. But, like If you're going to get into something like this, you have to be – you have to understand that like no one's going to show up and go, hey, i got this great new program we're going to roll out. Like You're going to have to do that for yourself. Right.
0: I, I think a lot of people miss the aspect that the hustle is real, right? You need to put some effort into it, but also not just that. You need to look at avenues that you can let people know you exist. It, it shocks me how few people like in our industry specifically do any form of advertising. Hmm. Their, their idea of sales and advertising is listed on morph market end of list. Okay. It's like, well, that's very passive, right? Like yeah. you, somebody has to be looking very specifically for a specific snake to come and find you. And they're like, oh, well, but they'll find me, right? Because that's the only place to look. And it's like, well, this is why your animals aren't selling, right? Or even, you know, the Arlington show that we just had this past weekend, a lot of breeders, you know, talked about how bad things were. And, you know, they couldn't sell a thing, blah, blah, blah. And then you talk to the few breeders that, you know, they were at the front of their table, right? And they were talking to customers and they were selling and they were hustling. And all of a sudden you hear them and they're like, no, it wasn't the best show in the world, but I made good money, so we're good. Yeah. And it's like, you gotta yeah. put that effort in. And and like you said with the consulting, like people people like to have excuses for their lack of success when a lot of times even if the economy was good, they probably wouldn't really be that successful. You know? Yeah. So Yeah, and
1: I think like you also have to have like kind of that <laughs> that daily sales uh item. Yeah. so like you're not gonna sell a twenty thousand dollar Python every day. No. It's no, just the market's not there. There's not yeah. enough people willing to spend that much money on a snake right. to do that on a daily basis. When I go to those shows, the the most volume I see move is a mix between older people like me that have money now. And we're freaks mm-hmm. and we like stuff, so yeah. we just buy it because, like, oh, I want one of those too. Of course. Right? But uh, the other side of it is it's kids. Yeah. It's 14, 15-year-old kids trying to get their mom to let them buy a snake or buy a frog or a gecko or something like that. And so you have to have something to sell into the mid price market, I think as well, or you're not going to have enough volume consistently to even out through those tougher times.
0: Uh So, so if you, if you go and look through our store, there's a range from like 300 or $300 to like 20,000. Okay. And, and and the reason for that is like you said there, so about 60% of the ball Python market is sub $500 just based off of like morph market data. So, if all you're producing is $500 and less snakes, you're competing with 60% of the market. That doesn't sound like fun. That's yeah. uh, tough because you really have to stand out at that point. But if you produce those animals so you can still meet that market, but then you're also producing animals that are, you know, $501 to $1,500, you're hitting another market there. And that only accounts for like 20% of the industry. Right. And you kind of make sure like you're hitting each market all the way up. Eat and most just,
1: tiers exactly. of Exactly.
0: Uh, okay. So you're taking care of, you know, and that's that's where a company like ours though with scale is able to really do that you know if you have a small breeder in their closet it's going to be much harder for them to do that consistently with 10 or 11 clutches whereas you know we're going to have 100 this year potentially two, 300 next year so with volume you're able to spread that out a lot more and you get that cash flow you know more consistently whereas the smaller breeders definitely have a boom or bust kind of situation um but, yeah, I mean, as as a bigger breeder, like, that's one of the things you have to do is is learn how to scale things appropriately so you can hit multiple customer segments because, um, you know, the $20,000 snakes, they sell. uh, It definitely happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not so every day, really like you it said. If they didn't, right? Exactly. Yeah. So it's,
1: it was a thing 25 years ago, and it's still a thing now. Yeah. Right? So things don't have a quarter of a century of longevity mm-hmm. if they're right. not actually a thing.
0: Yeah. For sure. Well, and not just that. It's it's so funny to me since the day I got in. So I I bought my first snakes in 2012, and that year people told me the market was crashing and it was going to die. And yeah. here we are, you know, 11 years later, and the market's still crashing, and then we're all and everything's die. crashing of, all the time. Everything's course. dying all the time. Everything's right. already dead and just
1: doesn't know it yet. And-
0: yeah, and when you when you start looking at the people saying that, a lot of times you realize like. You are the problem, not the industry, right? I'm yeah. not saying that like there's not ebbs and flows in every industry. What you know, look, Pokemon went through this uh, sports cards and collectibles in general went through the same boom during COVID. Yeah, uh, massive boom and pricing hasn't really reset since then. It, it happens. We have these ebbs and flows, and just because pricing goes down a little bit doesn't mean a market's crashing. The ball python market, we sell volume, we sell you know a good amount of animals every single week. And the fact that stuff is selling tells me the market's perfectly fine and and there's security in that. Um, And I think some people just miss that aspect, you know,
1: do you think with the way society's kind of moving and and things are getting more complicated for people and, and what used to be a good income maybe isn't anymore um, that more people are going to kind of do what you're doing. And I don't mean necessarily ball pythons. What I'm talking about is, embracing like their personal passion and then marrying that to something actually productive and pursuing some form of what we think is an unconventional career. And I would say that's what you have because you're not going to apply for the job that you have. Right. And get a job. And if you do, there's maybe one or two, Places that are big enough to hire someone at your level to work there, and so you're going to compete with 800 people for one job, right? Right. You're not going to. You're not going to put in an application. I want to be a podcast host. (laughs) Being a podcast host, like, there's so many of these things now. You actually, when you're successful, if you're one of the better in the marketplace, you make way I, I make more money than probably some people that are general practitioner doctors guaranteed, which is yeah. kind of insane. <clears throat> oh, absolutely. They So devalued a medical degree to that level. But I didn't do that. I did my thing. And I think more right. and more people are going to be like. And I think you're seeing it with very misguided youth right now because they don't know what they're saying when they say it. But like one of the things that a lot of young people like teens, early 20s want to be now as a social media influencer. Yeah, buddy. And they have no idea what that actually means. It just looks easy. (laughs) But that just tells me they're looking at things with maybe I don't have to do what they told me I have to do. And maybe I can actually do better for myself doing things differently.
0: Yeah, I, I I think the answer has to be yes. Just when you look at the younger generations and when I look at my, my younger sisters and my nieces and my nephews and and like you said, like social media influencer. Well, it's kind of a, a trash term at times. Like at the end of the day, they're advertising billboards, right? Like that's yeah. really what they actually mean they want to be. They want to be Mad Men, um, which is a great job. And, and that's one of the great things. Like, look, Instagram, TikTok they give megaphones to people now and if you can build up an audience, you can have that non-traditional career and you can, you can marry that to that. Um, stay at home, you know, people they are able to set up YouTube videos, right? And you can build an audience and start monetizing that aspect. And once you start getting an audience, right, then you can go into secondary monetization by setting up like a Patreon account. And then you start getting paid per content creation and you can set up a discord where you can do consulting and you have all of these secondary abilities to gain money. Um, I think honestly the biggest issue is just free time for people. I think that's, that's really where the bigger issue comes in is people having the free time in their mind to do that stuff. And mm-hmm. if it's a priority making the time to do it and, and, and that's where I almost think it's harder for older generations maybe where they're still so stuck in the mindset of like, I don't have the time to do that. And it's like, well, if it, if it mattered to you, if you really wanted to do it, you would make time for it, you know? And I think that's, you know, what we did with Andre and I did with the snakes early on. We had full time jobs. You know, it was tough. We worked a lot of hours, but the snakes were important to us. So we made time for it. Um, and I look at, you know, like my sister uh, does like audiobooks and like podcasting and stuff while she's in med school. It's important to her. She yeah. makes time for it. Right. Um, I, I think that's the important part. And I think that maybe is the harder part to answer of that. Right. Do I think more people are going to do that stuff? I think A it depends on how bad things get, and B are people willing to take the time to actually do that stuff and learn those skills to be able to monetize that stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> and I, I do think we're going to see more and more of it because yeah. I'll I'll put it this way: I always say if people ask me like, "How do you do? You really enjoy what you, you you do?" You know, after 15 years of doing it, and yes, and it's better than a real job. Yeah, it's sure. it's not any less work than a real job.
0: Oh, no, it's, it's, it's probably better, more. Than it, yeah. It's
1: better work than a real job, you know, yeah. and there are times like, is it more work? Yes. But can I just decide for two hours today? I don't want to do anything. Yeah. yeah. I also as as have an interview scheduled or something. I can go. <laughs> yeah, for two hours, I'm not going to yeah. do anything. And, and and if somebody looks at you and says, what are you doing? You go, I'm doing nothing. Yeah. And it was everything I dreamed it could be. Right. Like, best, I mean, right. Yeah. And you just don't ever have that with a J-O-B. No, right?
0: No, and and I think that was honestly the initial step from pharmaceutical back into academia was actually a little bit of what you're saying. The 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 lab that I went to work for basically was like, we don't care when you work, we just need X deliverables done. And so it was like that. I could stay up till four in the morning and work if I wanted to. I could get up at six in the morning, like whatever schedule I wanted. And I think that. Really started really priming everything for being ready to transition out of you know the real world again, right? Because like you said you can do whatever you want it very rarely is it less work I mean, let's be real like a lot of jobs you can check out, you know nine to five and you check out and you're good to go uh, Yeah, my brain and Andre's brain never stops thinking about snakes I mean we're answering text messages and phone calls at ten, eleven o'clock at night um, But we love it and I, like I said before I, I wouldn't change things. It's it's fantastic.
1: This is why I say if you're going to go in the business, get something you're passionate about and do it yeah. because you'll work like that for something <laughs> you're passionate about. Yes. And if we've discussed today, whatever you're that passionate about, there's a business there because somebody else is that passionate about it. And I, I don't think there's ever been a time in history better to do this than right now because we have tools like, you know, I'm pulling up and by the way, that's just a gorgeous snake for those oh, thank you. the video. Uh It makes me think of like uh some some of the really high-end, like, jaguar or Yeah, yeah, thought, for right? sure. Like, it, it really screams that. But to be able to do this, to be able to create this and go, like, this animal exists because yeah. of, you know, my predictive genetics or whatever. like And that we created this animal, and now it's going to go live with somebody else. Like, it has to mean something to you. And there's other people who look at it and go, so what? And that's why you shouldn't do it. And that's why you should find the thing that you feel that way about, that you feel about the way Patrick feels about this animal, and that you want to be able to create this animal so somebody like me can look at that and just go, God, that's beautiful. (laughs) right? And that may not mean jack shit to you, but something does. Uh, And we have all these platforms that are like, that's on Instagram. We have the TikToks. We have the YouTubes. We have just the Internet as a whole. We have in your space the (laughs) North Market thing (laughs) or whatever and the angry dog. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And and there's just so much opportunity with this today. I mean, no matter what it is. So you want to tell people about kind of your website. And I've got that and all your social media, and everything in the show notes as well for you.
0: Yeah, no. um, So the easiest way to get a hold of us, honestly, is either through Morph Market or Instagram. Um, We have the website just because it's a landing page that people go to occasionally. um, But the contact information there directs you to either Instagram or Morph Market. Um, If you look for us, we're chimera underscore reptile. um, And if you have any questions about ball pythons, snakes, reptiles, just want to hang out and talk, we're always ready to chat and show off some cool stuff for sure.
1: And uh, can you tell us what, where the name of the of the of, of the business come from?
0: Oh man, so uh, Andre and I were fighting over what we were gonna name the new company. Okay. And he texted me one night at like two in the morning. He's like, Chimera. And that's all I said. It was just Chimera. And I was like, Huh? I kind of like it. And then the <laughs> next morning, he we he called me and he was like. So it kind of feels fitting like it's this, you know, you know, a genetic chimera where you have these two entities that look like, you know, one entity that looks like a merging of two different genes and all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, it is kind of the merging of two into one. Let's go with it. Um, So, yeah, that's it. It was it just kind of he popped up with it one day and then it just kind of fit and we rolled with it. So.
1: Well, very, very <laughs> cool. And like I said, yeah. I have links to all your stuff in the show notes for people if you want to get those. Uh, Right down in the video notes, if you're watching the video, there's a link over to my site with the audio version of the show, an embedded video version. You can make comments there. You can find all the resources and links we talked about. But if you click it right now, this minute, while you're watching it live, it won't work because we're not quite (laughs) done. It'll be about 30 minutes from right now if you're watching it live. Uh, Patrick, it's been a great discussion. Uh, It's certainly something I have kind of a background with it
0: yeah i love that i i actually didn't realize you were so into reptiles and i absolutely oh. love that it's fantastic man that's cool
1: i heard you submitted it because you're like "Oh, this is a layup don't <laughs> take anything with snakes because i was i was a freak with snakes i even worked uh part-time as a volunteer during a summer at the philadelphia zoo as part of a program out of my school so like that was at one time something i thought that was going to be what i did i wanted to uh to, to get a degree and go, you know, be Marlon Perkins in the field and, and what have you. Oh, and my just, God. I
0: It just did yeah. not
1: come out that way, you know.
0: I, I love it. It's funny. So Andre's been listening to you probably a decade now, I feel like. um And when we first started working together, he brought up the podcast and, you know, got me turned on to it. And then, you know, right before I sent in the stuff, he was like, hey, I actually think this would be a really good fit. Like, you should message him. I think he'd like us on. So that's actually how we ended up here, but uh, yeah, he knew knew clearly, right? That's great. I love it. He's like, he's like, you're from Texas. He's from Texas. It's great. It's perfect. So (laughs) it's good stuff.
1: Very, very cool, man. Well, again, I appreciate you being with us and uh, enjoyed talking to you and thanks. uh, thanks for being with us
0: today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks bud. Have a good one. You too.
1: All right, folks, with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. I want to remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can help support us, just do your online shopping starting at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Easy to remember. You'll find all the items that I recommend there. Today's item of the day, I actually sold a very similar product through T-Spaz a few months ago, and the company sold out. These are easy fermenter wide-mouth lids, and I guess the TSP effect came in, and we sold, like, all of the ones that particular vendor had and i don't know if you got out of the business or whatever but it's never come back in stock and i've had a couple inquiries about them so i was like maybe somebody else makes the same damn thing because everything's manufactured in china or taiwan or whatever and turns out yeah they do so this is a different brand but it's the same product has all the same features what these are is an airlock if you're doing fermentation of vegetables Uh, lacto-fermentation where you're making kind of like a fermented pickle type thing or making sauerkraut. Instead of having to fill an airlock with water worrying it's going to dry out, these are a one-way valve. You put them on the jar. They just work. You can also get them with weights to keep everything under the salt brine. Uh, That just makes sure everything's going to work. But one of the really cool things these things have, they have like a day timer built right into the lid where you can just set the date when you Put them in, and if you're supposed to let that ferment run for seven days or whatever, you always know your individual jars. And everybody that's tried these has loved them. They also have kind of a little tab on the side of them so that if that jar gets really kind of cinched up, you push on that, they open really easy. Really great product. Definitely want to check these out. Easy fermenter, wide mouth lids. Uh, And then the other thing I want to remind you guys about, again, is that book. Uh, from Jim Shockey. I've got to get that order in Friday close of business to the, uh, there's actually a bookstore down in Houston uh, that Jim's going to be at and they have to have everything shipped in and ready for him the day that he is there to get that uh, shipped up to me so I can get them to you. So if you want an extra copy of that book and a few people have definitely ordered them while we're here, just go ahead and there's a link in the Uh, video notes below or in the show notes if you're on the audio uh, to be able to do that and it's gonna like you don't get a lot of opportunity to do this and again if you're looking for something for somebody as a gift that is like into outdoor riders watches the hunting channels and stuff like that you you really can't do better than this they're 35 bucks a copy I'm not making any money off them. by the time I get them shipped here and the signing setup and all that I'm just selling them at cost uh, to people that want extra ones. Again, if you're a paying student, you're getting one, and a few other folks that are friends of the family, so to say, I've got you. I've, if I haven't told you, and you're going to be here, and you're not a paying student, and you want one, I would get one ordered. I'll just put it to that way. Anyway, with that, guys, I will uh, catch you guys on Friday with an expert council show, as I announced earlier this week. Uh, I'm going to a four, or last week, I guess, I'm going to go to a four-day, uh, four show a day, uh, a four shows a week, Schedule uh, and I'm going to start adding some other things into what we do, and after fifteen years, I, like I said, at times you just get tired, man, uh, so that starts this week, and uh, so Thursday we won't have a show and going forward, most Thursdays from this point forward, we will not have a show, but I will catch you Friday with that expert council show, and then I'll be back Monday we'll do it all again.
0: are they gonna bail you out or just run you around.